Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Well, we're in a sermon series that we launched last week called Don't Be a Troll. Now, usually when we uh, start a sermon series around here, we pick a really like super clear, easy to understand title, like something that's just, you know, a while ago we did a serm- uh, series on being burnt out and we just called it Overwhelm. Now, this one, we went a little different route and we kind of are going a bit of a humorous tongue in cheek, don't be a troll. And, and we had a, a few people wondering, so what does don't be a troll mean? Well, it means don't be a troll. Well, what kind of troll are we talking about? See, there's, there's two kinds of trolls that we might be familiar with. The first, if, if you ever spend any time on the internet, you've probably heard of the term an internet troll. And an internet troll is someone who's just there to try and cause havoc for their own amusement, you know, just to poke and prod and kind of just antagonize people because they think it's funny to get a rise out of some people. And let's be honest, we've all done that at some point or another. You know, we've, we've poked other people's buttons just because we could. But the other type of troll is if we go to kind of like a common mythological troll perspective, is a troll was, was a, a creature that lived under a bridge and supposedly took care of the bridge. But what they would do is they would demand a toll from anyone that came by. And they would, would stop travelers and be like, you have to pay this coin, you have to pay this fee if you want to cross my bridge. And the, mytho- the mythology of a troll is that no one wants to be around one. No one wants to encounter one because you're just trying to get to your destination. You don't want to be accosted. You don't want to be stopped. You just want to get by them. And so what we're really talking about with this sermon series is we're not talking about living under a bridge. We're not talking about antagonizing people. We're talking about how do we have tough conversations We're talking about how do we talk about the things that really matter, that are important. And now if you're you're here on a Sunday, I can kind of make an assumption that you're here because you either have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're interested, you're curious about this whole faith, Christianity thing, or maybe you're with someone and they dragged you along and you're kind of like, well, I'm just here. But what we're talking about in this is how do we have conversations? And so for some of us, this might apply in terms of if you want to be able to share with someone, you know, this is why I believe, this is why I have a relationship with Jesus. That sometimes is a tough conversation that we might feel unease about sharing with someone, well, you know, this is why I believe in Jesus. This is why I have the relationship I have. But for any of us, this could be any form of difficult conversation is really what we're getting at. How do we talk about things that really matter? How do we talk about subjects that sometimes might get a little heated or get a little difficult to talk about? And so last week, Vicky started us off with this concept of saying, if we don't, if the first step to not being a troll is we actually have to know our own bridge. We have to know why we believe and why we think and why we understand things the way we do. We have to understand our own position before we try to discuss and, and wrestle and talk through some things with someone else. And so there's, today we're shifting that to saying the next step of not being a troll is how do you step out from your own bridge? And our, our troll up here, we did a poll on our Facebook group, and this is what happens when you let the internet decide things. Our troll's name is Trolly McTrollface, was what was chosen. So Trolly McTrollface is going to have a, a few pointers for us on how do we step out from our bridge and have tough conversations. And now, 
if you go back, this is a quote that goes back. We don't exactly know who said it because it's one of those old quotes, but you've all heard this at some point. Never discuss religion or politics in polite company. Who's, who's heard that or some variation? You've heard that. You know, now, this is good advice if, for example, you're at a job interview where you're trying to get hired, you know, or maybe if you're on a first date or if you're meeting your future in-laws for the first time. You know, there's, there's just topics that are no-go. You just don't, don't go there. But the problem is is we've taken this, never discussed religion or politics in polite company, and we've, we've converted, it, converted it into saying, don't discuss religion and politics ever. Or if you do, just you know, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And, and none of us really are, tend to be that great at discussing these sometimes. And part of it is just the way our culture has shifted. You know, We try to have conversations in 140 characters or less online, and we have less face-to-face conversations. But what I want to do is, is talk about if we, how do we actually have tough conversations? How do we talk about things like religion or politics? Now, we're not going to talk about politics here because I just don't want to go there. Um, that's my own little thing. But how do we talk about the things that really matter? How do you have conversations that actually get to deep and meaningful things that actually build each other up and help shape who we are as people instead of just keeping things surface level? See, this is one of the things that, that I believe and, and, I, and Scripture talks about as well, and it's kind of the continuation of that quote even. If we aren't able to have real conversations about real topics, we end up isolated and alone. We end up like Trolley McTrollface living under his bridge, not able to have any form of conversation with the people that come by because he doesn't know how to talk to them. All he knows is, I need your money. And that's not who we want to be. That's not what we want to be. See, oftentimes there's reasons why we don't want to have real conversations. Sometimes we're scared that we're going to offend someone or we're scared that, you know, this might go completely sideways. And we've all had a conversation that completely went sideways on us and ended up in a place we didn't want to. And, and we've probably all had a relationship of some type that was damaged because of a conversation. But that's what leads to this paradox, because if we don't want to take the risk of having a real conversation with someone and we keep everything surface level, we never get to the depth and the richness of a friendship or a relationship that can happen. We keep everything surface and everything's just polite and nice and and calm. But oftentimes there's things that are deeper that we want to discuss, that we want to wrestle through, something that we're struggling with in life that we really just need a friend to, to process it with us. But if we don't learn how to have those conversations, it makes us feel isolated and alone. And so that's what we're digging into with this whole step out from your bridge. Because a true community means that we're having real conversations about real topics. In fact, I think that this is true, that if we aren't able to discuss things that we disagree on, if we aren't able to wrestle through topics that can be considered inflammatory and be able to do that with grace and with love and with care, we don't actually have community. We don't actually have real relationships. We have a pseudo-community. We have a false community where, you know, we're all around each other and we interact with each other, but we never get to anything of substance. And there's a, there's a term for this called living in a bubble, and so this is kind of the first question that I want to ask and you can respond to through the YouVersion app, but how can you realize if you're living in a bubble? 
Now, a bubble is kind of when generally everyone around you thinks and acts and, and perceives the world the same way that you do. And so there's never any opportunity for any sort of real discussion or debate or friction because, hey, we all just agree on the same thing. Isn't that true? See, in this room, I guarantee you, there's probably only one topic we could come up with that we would all be in agreement on. And you know what that one topic is? That mosquitoes should be eradicated, right? That's probably the only thing that we could pull everyone in this room and we'd say we'd all agree we could just get rid of mosquitoes and that'd be all good. But let's say we pick a different topic. Um, what's better, football or soccer? Or maybe you think they're the same thing. Or, see, already, I got a couple. Or, uh, well, sports teams are easy to pick on, but what kind of car do you like, domestic or import? What kind of, like anything, you know, a couple weeks ago there was some joking going on about propane versus charcoal for grilling, and we know it's charcoal, but, but any of these topics, we could get a debate going on. See, the truth is, when we think we're in a bubble, we're just in a fake bubble, because oftentimes we're just not touching those topics that actually could lead to something meaningful. See, maybe you're in a situation where a friend of yours is going through a difficult time and you're trying to walk with them and care for them, but one of the things you know is saying, you know what, I want to share with this person, I want to share with my friend how my walk with God has carried me through situations like that. That's a tough conversation to walk into sometimes, to say, hey, I want to share with you, this is how I got through a situation like yours. And sometimes that conversation could go really well, sometimes it might not. But we have to learn how to have those conversations. And every time we do that, we start moving towards a real community instead of a community that's based in a bubble, in its own little sphere. And this concept actually goes all the way back to the very beginnings of Scripture, of of what does it mean to be a community with a purpose? What does it mean to be a community that that interacts and and has an effect on the world? And so we're going to spend some time walking through Scripture, and we're going to start at the very beginning of Scripture, and then we're going to kind of jump through some big, big portions of the timeline of history and just look at this one theme that carries and develops through. And so we're going to actually begin going all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, when there's a man named Abram. And later on, Abram gets renamed to Abraham. But this is what happens early on in Genesis. God comes to Abram and he says, leave your native country, leave your relatives, leave your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now that's quite the promise that God makes to Abram. Now there's, there's a, a problem with this though. And he says, he talks about, will all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And now that's a term meaning through your descendants. But Abram and his wife Sarah don't have kids. And they're getting quite elderly at this point, And they get even older before they miraculously have a child. And they have a son, Isaac. Now, that's a a great nation, right? One descendant. They're really growing on a big scale. But Isaac, he goes on and he has two kids. He has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau is born first, but Jacob is kind of a trickster. And through Jacob's influence of his mom, they actually steal the birthright that was supposed to go to Esau of being the firstborn son. 
and he steals the birthright. And so the firstborn privileges go to Jacob. Now Jacob, later on in life, he has many children. And and so here we start seeing this family tree start to grow. But Jacob has this encounter in the middle of a night where an angel comes and wrestles with him and they fight all night long. And finally, it's an, it's an even match and Jacob is fighting this angel and finally what the angel does is, is, is the angel pokes Jacob's hip and wrenches his hip out of its socket and that's the only way the angel wins. And there's this, this debate that happens where Jacob says to the angel, tell me your name because he wanted to understand what had just happened. And the angel, instead of telling Jacob the angel's name, the angel says to Jacob, from now on you will be named Israel. For Israel means one who has wrestled with God. And this is where, later on, we get this term, the kingdom, or the, the nation of Israel, is the descendants of Jacob, who, are the, who is the descendant of Isaac, who is the descendant of Abraham. And so throughout the Old Testament, every time they talk about the Israelites, they're talking about the descendants of Jacob that goes back to Jacob's grandfather, Abram, who has this promise that came from God that someday all the families on earth would be blessed through those descendants. Now we're going to fast forward 400 years, and what happens is Jacob and all of his children, they end up in Egypt through uh, Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, and Joseph becomes the second in command of all of Egypt through some really, well, only God could do what happened. And so this Israelite nation ends up in Egypt for 400 years, but what happens over time is they get enslaved by Egypt. And all they know is being slaves to the nation of Egypt. And finally, God steps in and he says, okay, it's time now for this promise to start getting rolled into motion. And God sends Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity, to take them out of Egypt and into this place called the Promised Land. And now when God does this, the the Israelites have been living in slavery so long, they don't know how to be a nation. They don't know their own identity anymore. All they know is slavery. And so God sends ten plagues, and these ten plagues systematically prove that God is bigger than the so-called gods of the Egyptian nation. Each plague attacks one by one the Egyptian gods and proves that the God of Abraham, Yahweh, is the true, real God. And so the first Passover happens, and Moses leads the people out, and and God parts the Red Sea as this even just one more big thing to prove this is real, this is happening. And so the Israelites get their freedom, and what's the first thing they want is they want to go back. They want to go back to Egypt and they say, well, this is all scary and unknown. We don't know what we're walking into, but at least we knew what life was like back there. We knew what life was like as slaves. And so God meets with Moses on the mountaintop and God gives Moses the law. Now the law had a purpose of describing what the people of Israel were to be. It's basically the benchmark, the rules for how to be the nation that God has called them to be. If you're wondering where this all ties into, don't be a troll in conversation, just bear with me just one more moment. See, what happens is this law had a purpose. It was meant to give the Israelites their identity of what it meant to be a community, what it meant to be in relationship with one another. 
And so the last, the fifth book of the Bible is the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is three speeches that Moses gave to the people after they've been wandering through the wilderness. They've come to the edge of the promised land for the second time, and now they have permission to go into it. And Moses gets up and he addresses the people, and he gives them these three final speeches before Moses knows he's going to die, and he's going to hand things off to Joshua, and Joshua takes the people into the promised land. And this is what Moses has to say. This is where this gets important. Moses says this, And now, Israel, listen carefully to these decrees and regulations that I'm about to teach you. Obey them so you may live, so you may enter and occupy the land that the Lord your God, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add or subtract from these commands I'm giving you. Just obey them, the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you. So he's saying really simply, Just obey. If you follow these things, you're good. That's all you have to do. He's setting a a clear expectation out for them. And this is what he goes on to in the next couple verses. He says, look, I now teach you these decrees and regulations as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. Obey them completely and they will display your wisdom and intelligence are among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, how wise and prudent are the people of this great nation. This is the the thesis statement of why the law existed. The law existed so that as the Israelites lived as God's people, that they would be a witness to all the nations and all the people groups around them revealing who God is. Their law set them apart so that they would be a representative of God's love and his presence in the world. This is the purpose of the Israelite people, to reveal God to the world. That's what goes all the way back to the promise that God gave to Abram, that all the families on earth will be blessed through you. They will be blessed by the Israelites revealing God to the world. So what happens? Instead, the Israelites turned their law into legalism. They turned these codes and commandments and how to live in ways that would demonstrate hospitality, in ways that would demonstrate generosity, in ways that would demonstrate care for the poor and the widowed and the sick and the elderly. And their law became a legal boundary of rules that anyone who did not fit within was exiled and cast out. Now, to be fair to the Israelites... Most of their interactions with the people around them were other nations trying to attack them. And it's difficult to show care and love and reveal God's presence to an army that's bearing down on your nation. So we'll give them a bit of grace on that. But the heart of it was the Israelites were meant to reveal God. But instead of that, they became isolated. Even though the Israelites tried to isolate themselves, though, something happens. This did not prevent God from fulfilling his promise. Even though the Israelites failed to reveal God's love to the world, God still had something bigger in mind. And so now we're going to jump ahead another several hundred years. And we're going to jump ahead to the time of Jesus. Because God knows what's going on and God has a bigger plan laid out. And so even though we've covered basically the whole Old Testament in you know about five to eight minutes, it's pretty good. We're going to jump to Jesus for a moment here because what happens 
is there's this 400-year time of silence where God doesn't send a prophet, God doesn't send a messenger, and the world's just kind of left as is. And and we kind of wonder what's going on. And then finally, there's this young, engaged woman named Mary. Probably she's about a teenager. And an angel comes and visits her and says, guess what? You are going to give birth to a child. And that child is special because that child is not just human. That child is God in flesh form coming into the world. And so Mary's kind of freaked out about this. Her fiancé is a little freaked out about this. And and her fiancé, Joseph, thinks that maybe I should just divorce her and and leave her and and save my honor and all this because this, this can't be real. But then God speaks to Joseph and says, no, no, this is real. And so Mary and Joseph get married and we celebrate this every Christmas that Jesus came into the world. This hope and light came into the world for a reason. And then when Jesus grows up, he's about 30 years old, he begins this ministry of traveling and telling people about God. And he starts revealing to people what it really means to be in a relationship with God. And there's this this portion of scripture that we're going to dwell in now for a little bit called the Sermon on the Mount. And it happens early on in Jesus' ministry. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Really, it should be the Sermon on the Hill because there's not really a mountain outside of Jerusalem. It'd be kind of like a like a grassy knoll kind of thing. And, and Jesus goes to the top of it and he starts teaching this longer chunk. And it's found in Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And if you're ever kind of saying, I, don't, I want to understand Jesus, just, just start with those three chapters. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Because this is the core and the essence of what Jesus teaches is found in just these three chapters. But what Jesus does is he starts taking these concepts from the Israelite law that God gave through Moses about 1,500 years earlier. And he starts updating them. And he starts getting to what the law was really meant to be about. And Jesus starts teaching in ways of saying, and he uses this phrase quite often in there. He says, you have heard it said this, but I say this. And he's kind of building version 2.0 of the Israelite law. And there's just four verses that we're going to dwell in and we're going to spend time in. That's Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And it starts with this. Jesus says right near the very beginning of the sermon, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? No, it'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, Jesus often talked like this in in metaphors and images that would make people have to wrestle with it to understand what he was saying. And this whole part, I'm going to start with just salt. You know, we think of salt as, as flavoring, as seasoning. But salt is so much more than that. Salt purifies. Um, it can be used as an antiseptic, but salt also preserves. And in an era long before refrigeration and long before electricity and anything like that, salting and curing meat was about the only way of preserving it so that they could survive. And so salt was this key mineral. In fact, uh, there's times where salt was even so valuable it was used as the currency in place of coins. And you would use bags of salt as your currency to trade with someone. But Jesus says, what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? 
Can you make it salty again? And what he's referring to is the salt production in the Mediterranean basin all happened at the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is just this incredibly salty body of water. And they would take the water out and they would let it evaporate and they would collect the salt that would be left over. But the salt was very impure. Only about 30% of what they gathered would actually be salt and the rest would be other minerals and, and sand and other substances. And so over time, if you use this salt that 30% salt would be used up and you'd have what you thought was salt, but it's not salty anymore. And it's no good and it would get tossed out. What good is salt if it's not salty anymore? He goes on, he says, what good is a lamp if you hide it under a basket? And light and lamps were common metaphors all throughout all of Scripture for God's love and His presence. And he's saying, you don't, if you have God's love and you have God's presence with you, you don't hide it. Light is only good if it shines out forward. See, what Jesus is really saying, he gets to in the very next verse, Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, when we read that, we need to think back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 8. When Moses told the people of Israel, the way you live your lives, when you follow this law, when you live differently than everyone else, you will reveal God to the world. That's what Jesus is talking about here too. In the same way, when you are salt, when you preserve and when you purify and when you season, when you enhance whatever you're added to, and when you're light, when you reveal hope, when you reveal love, when you reveal God's presence, you are revealing God to the world. Remember that promise to Abraham, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is how we, those of us who who follow Jesus, who have chosen to realize that God loves us and wants to love the world and wants to be in a relationship with everyone, this is how we do that. That's why the church still stands 2,000 years later why people like us, we gather around the world, why the church is growing in places where it's never grown and never reached before, is by being salt and light. By revealing God's love, by preserving, by purifying, by sharing God's love and His light. That's what we are called to. But this sometimes takes tough conversations. Sometimes this takes difficult ways of of walking through messy situations with people, of walking through uh, environments and situations where we might say, yeah, I'd rather be anywhere else but here. But here is where God is, and here's where God's placing me. And so I want to ask you this second question. What are some examples of how you can be salt and light in the world today? What does it mean to have this revealing who God is in the world today? See, if we go back to our troll, we go back to Mr. Trolley McTrollface for a moment and think about him. He's not salt or light. He lives under his bridge and he accosts the travelers that go by. He doesn't know how to show that he cares. And in fact, it's a very lonely life living under a bridge when your only interactions are people that don't want to talk to you. I bet that our troll probably craves community probably craves some relationships. And see, what the Israelites were meant to do, what Jesus calls us, 
is saying, where are the relationships where we're influencing people for good? Where are the relationships where we're revealing God's love to other people? Because there's this simple truth that we can summarize between what Moses said to the Israelites and what Jesus said on the the hill outside of Jerusalem. You can't influence change from a position of isolation. You cannot influence change if you're isolated from anyone else. Isolation prevents influence. We can't share hope. We can't share light. We can't share love if we're isolated from everyone else. That's what it means to step out from our bridge. We have to choose to say, I'm not going to live in a bubble where everyone thinks the same way I do. I'm not going to live and and work and act in a realm where I never actually come across someone there where we might have differences of opinion and different understandings on something. Because how can we be an influence for good? How can we be an influence and reveal God's love if we're isolated? See, building real friendships only happens when we step out from under our bridges. If we want to have meaningful conversations, if we want to have real relationships, we have to step forward into something that might be uncomfortable, something that might be difficult. See, next week, we're going to be talking about what do you do when you've actually stepped out from under your bridge? How do you actually have these conversations? And I'll give you a little sneak peek. It's pretty simple. Don't be a troll. You know, don't demand things of other people. Don't accost them. You know, but we're going to dig into the nuts and bolts. And there's some, some amazing examples from Scripture that we're going to dig into of how do you have real conversations about very difficult topics. But here's, here's the key point that I want to leave you with. We have to step out from under our bridges. We have to choose not to live in isolation, not to surround ourselves with people that think the same way we do. And the second part is this. Having tough conversations without offending each other is a learned skill. It's not something we're born with. It's not something we can just naturally do. We actually have to make a choice of saying, I want to work at this. I want to be able to wrestle through difficult topics and not end up wanting to punch someone out. Like, let's be honest. We don't want to go that route. So let me ask this third question. Then we're going to spend some time. We're going to open up a conversation. What does it mean about some of these topics? And the third one is this. What's one thing you can do today What's one thing you can start doing today that will lead to a meaningful conversation? I'll let you think on that, and we'll go back to the first one to start things off. If you're typing something in on the app, it'll, it'll pop up on my screen here in just a moment, and uh, Drew's got a microphone. And so let's just start with this first one. How do you realize if you're living in a bubble? And there's, there's one response in here saying not feeling challenged, not ever feeling like you've been challenged views. But But what else? What's something that might indicate that you're living in a nice, hermetically sealed, little germ-free bubble of sorts. And if you just stick up your hand, Drew's going to bring you a microphone so we can all hear. How do you realize if you're in a bubble? Someone's got something to say. I know that. Here, over here. When everyone else is talking to you only about uh, the weather and other things, everything is very, very uh, superficial when everyone else is talking to you superficially. Yeah, if, if your conversations are all just about the weather or 
You know, that, that surface level superficial. That's one of the ways of saying, wait a second, am I in a bubble? Yeah? Well, what else? What else might indicate that you're in a bubble? If social norms are shocking to you. Expand on that. If social norms are shocking to you, what do you mean by that? Of course, you're going to ask me to expand. If you, I grew up in the church, right? Uh, when I was 18, I kind of, or 19, kind of struck out on my own a little bit. And I found that I had been living in a nice Christianese little bubble. Because as I made friends and I learned more about the culture that I lived in, I found it strange. And I found it strange that people thought it was normal. And then I realized, I'm the strange one. And I'm socially awkward. <laughs> and have no way, the, the, like the essence of that is that then you end up with no way to relate to people. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. Thanks for sharing that, Drew. If you struggle to be able to relate with people that aren't the same as you? If you struggle to relate, are you able to find somewhere to connect? And if you can't, that might be that, yeah, your experience has, has become a bubble. Um, there's two comments that came in here. If all your relationships are from the same place, that's one way of telling. And second, if everyone agrees with you and you agree with everyone, yeah, then you're definitely in a bubble. How about this second question, just to kind of keep the things rolling? What are some examples of how you can be salt and light in the world today? Uh, and I like one of the responses that came in here saying, being hopeful and kind, standing for something while maintaining kindness. So how do you stand for a position or, or share that while remaining kind and gracious and gentle? And this is, this is one we're going to dig into a ton next week. So this is kind of like my research stage for you guys to respond to this question. So no one caught that? Oh, well. So what are... What are some ways that we can be salt and light in the world today? Any, any further thoughts on that? Trying to come from a place of respect at all points, like even if you're trying to discuss some of the topics that are more of a challenge, to always, even if somebody else doesn't agree with your point of view, to still come to them from a place of respect so that they don't feel like they're being attacked and people are more open to seeing your point of view when they don't feel like they're being attacked. That's, that's hitting the nail on the head right there. Do, does the person you're discussing this with, do they feel respect as you're wrestling through it? And it's probably true. I mean, there's a, a I can't think of, the, of who said this, but it's that, that we all know the phrase, you know, people won't remember what you've said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Maya Angelou, I think, was who said that. But that whole point of saying, you know, they might not remember your points, but they'll remember that you were friendly, that you actually could discuss and, and you could have a disagreement without it getting heated, without it getting, you know, without stomping out of the room, storming mad or anything like that. How about this third question? What's one thing you can start doing today that will lead to meaningful conversations? Um, and there's a response coming here. Sometimes I tell people I find God is relevant to the topic we're discussing. Or take that first step to reach out to those that you care about and those who, who call you to reach out to. How do you take that, that step of being 
responsive when someone wants to reach out, to let them know I'm not, you're not closed off to a conversation. What else? What's a, what's a step towards more meaningful conversation? I think just um, forming an identity, you know, and uh, with your walk with uh, God. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that would be a good start. Yeah, and that, that's a great start. Knowing, and that's, that's exactly what Vicky was talking about last week, of knowing your own bridge, like knowing your identity. Do we actually know our own position and know why we believe what we believe as, as that starting point? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. One that popped in here saying, always coming from a place of kindness. It's like you guys are reading my outline for next week already. Something that I learned from, holy cow. Uh, something that I learned from uh, my, my very uh, experienced uh, father-in-law experienced at counseling and stuff like that, is if, if you start a conversation with the, uh, by questions with the intention of understanding the other person first, mm-hmm. uh, that, that will lead to an open discussion. Uh, I've heard it said once that uh, a lot of people listen to respond when we should just listen to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, Another way of phrasing that is, is if, we approach, if we approach a topic with curiosity of wanting to understand, instead of just listening to formulate our counterpoint, we go a long way towards creating a healthier space for conversation. Um, and yeah, that, that listen to understand rather than listen to respond. And just, just ask yourself this sometime. If you're having a conversation with someone, are you just formulating your own response the whole time they're talking? You know... Track your internal dialogue sometime during a conversation. It might, it might surprise you a bit what, how our, our minds are naturally wired and how we say, no, I want to overcome that. I want to do something healthier. Okay, one more and then we're going to wrap things up. Go in with an open mind always. Even if you're really set in how you're thinking, if you go in with an open mind, that other person could very well say something to you that you may never thought of before and it can open your own growth if it's something that you hadn't thought of before. Yeah, exactly. And having that open mind, and that, that relates back to um, what we said about knowing your own identity, knowing your own bridge, is if, you, if, if you're secure and you understand why, you know, for example, being a pastor, I, I sometimes have really weird social interactions with people when they find out I'm a pastor. Like, I've had everything from where someone has, like, immediately, like, shut down and suddenly I don't exist because they're like, I can't talk to you, you're a pastor. Like, that's, that's just weird. And I've had interactions where, like, within 30 seconds of saying, like, hi, my name's Brian, this guy's pouring out his entire life story to me. And so, so as a pastor, I get these weird social interactions. But sometimes I, I end up in really interesting interactions with people that have beliefs that are completely contrary to Christianity. And I've had several occasions where someone's been like, you actually talked about that with me. And I, and I go, yeah, like, I know what I believe. I know what I've experienced. I know that God is real. I know that he loves everyone. But I can have an open mind, and it doesn't threaten me to talk about Buddhism with someone. It doesn't threaten me to talk about, you know, any, you know, atheism. It doesn't bother me to talk about agnosticism because I know where my basis is. But if I'm closed off and say, no, no, I can't talk to you because you're an atheist, well, then we're just proving their points. And so, yeah, it's exactly it. How do we have an open mind? And we're going to, okay, here, this is turning into a promo for like the next 
eight weeks-ish, because we're continuing this as we talk about Don't Be a Troll. And then September 9th, we're launching into a sermon series called The Problem of God. And essentially, we're talking about what's a skeptic's response to Christianity. And we're going we're gonna to talk about what does it mean to be skeptical about Christianity. And we're going to dig into some of these topics that, that our world and oftentimes ourselves have issues with Christianity and issues with God about. And so that's, that's kind of why we're doing this series leading into that one. Now I'm completely off track. Where was I supposed to end this? I want to end us with one key point and, and, and a thought to, to wrestle with of saying we need to step out from our bridge. We need to make sure that do we have relationships, do we have friendships, do we connect with our neighbors who maybe don't believe and don't see things the way we do? Because if we really believe that God has called us to be his salt and light in the world, if we really believe that God has called us to represent his presence in the world, like scripture says, we can't influence the world if we live in isolation. So how do we connect? How do we build real relationships and real friendships so that we can have that opportunity to share this is who God is? And so next week, we're going to dig into this the meat of how do you have these tough conversations. So I hope you'll come back and join us uh, next Sunday at 11. Uh, Let me pray for us before we close. God, thank you that you have a purpose and a meaning that you call us to, that you desire to share your love and your presence with everyone who lives on earth. And God, for some reason, you believe it is so important for us to be your partners, for us to walk with you in that process. So God, I pray through this week that you would challenge us to realize when we might be in a bubble, that you would challenge us to realize when we need to step forward into something that might be uncomfortable, that might be uneasy, but to listen, to discuss, and ultimately share your grace and your love through every conversation and every opportunity we have. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, have a great week. Um, Again, next Sunday, week three, don't be a troll. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.